What's up, everybody? It's Ben. Normally, here on the podcast uh, feed, we have conversations where it's just Caleb and I sitting down and we're breaking into something that we're trying to study here in Brooklyn and just give little overviews of sections of text and stuff. Uh, this series is a little bit different, and we thought it'd be worth putting here on the feed so that both people here in Brooklyn and maybe those of you who tune in in other places might be benefited from some Bible class discussions that we've had recently regarding politics and how Christians should view politics. I'll go ahead and say at the outset, this isn't um, a study that's designed to tell people how they should vote or even if they should vote or how they should participate politically or if they should participate politically. It's more about the kind of perspective Christians should have about their relationship to government and politics. Uh, These are class discussions conducted over Zoom over a period of weeks here in the late summer, early fall of 2020. Um, Obviously, the audio quality is rough in some spots, so you hope you can forgive that. Um, We just thought some people might find it valuable to listen to what some other people are dealing with and thinking about in Scripture. And if you have any questions or things you want to talk about, as always, reach out to us. Let us know what you think, and we hope that all of us can think of ourselves not so much as Americans or as citizens of any nation of the world, but as citizens of heaven, followers of King Jesus. Thanks for tuning in as always. We hope this is helpful for you. Okay, so Acts chapter 16. Let me get myself set up here to make it a little easier to hold my Bible. Uh, and we're going to be looking at this question. Can Christians, did Christians, utilize worldly political means? We're going to read this first one in Acts chapter 16. And then uh, I'm going to just throw it to you guys and say, hey, what do you think? Can Christians, should Christians utilize their political means that are at their disposal? So we're going to look at this example of Paul in, uh, in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi. I'm going to read verses 35 through 40, and then let's just discuss. Here's the question. Did Paul exercise political means at his disposal? And if so, what do you learn about that from this text? Acts 16, verse 35. Uh, By the way, context. Paul had been preaching, of course. That's what we saw last week. Every place they went, everything they were doing was concentrated on preaching the gospel. And uh, he ends up getting arrested in Philippi, thrown in prison. God sends an earthquake. The prison doors are open. The jailer's going to kill himself because he thinks he's a dead man anyways because the prisoners are going to get out. But Paul stops him. The man's baptized into Christ. It's great. Verse 35. Now, when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release these men. That is Paul and Silas and maybe others, but at least Paul and Silas. So the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates, or we might say like the city councilman or something like that, they've sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. In other words, he says, hey, Paul, you're a free man. Get out of here. But Paul said to them, They've beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans, Paul was a Roman citizen. He was a Jew by birth, but you could become a Roman citizen. He was actually a Jew by birth and a Roman citizen by birth. But anyway, uh, men who are Romans, and they threw us into prison, and now they're sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come out themselves and bring us out. The policeman reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them, and when they brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the house and entered the house of Lydia, one of the sisters in Philippi, the first convert in Philippi, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Okay, what do you see in this this story? Does Paul utilize his political capital, his political means that were at his disposal? And if so, what do you get out of this? The fact that he does, if he does, what do you see here about Paul's relationship to the politics and the political uh, setup in, uh, in Rome? It seems as if Paul wanted to be treated like any other Roman citizen, not any better, not any worse, just like anyone else should be treated. Sure, that's right. That's right. Good. Keep going. What else you guys know? It's Diana. And that he knew the protocol. He knew that he couldn't, they couldn't do nothing to him because he was a Roman citizen. But he knew the politics. 
he was an informed citizen. He knew the rules. He knew the laws. And, and yeah, that's right. I mean, he knew the politics. He knew the whole situation. That's a great point. So to Mark's point, he kind of expected to be treated like any other Roman citizen. So there he, he has an awareness and, and even asserts his political uh, rights as a Roman citizen. And also to Dinah's point, he actually knew the protocols. He knew the rules. He kind of knew how to call them out. It seems like maybe that's why they were sending away secretly is because they found out, they're like, Oof, we're going to get in big trouble. And Paul said, yeah, you are. And you're letting me out uh, uh, publicly. Brittany, go ahead. Yeah, I think that's also interesting, though, because he he uses the opportunity to, to make a scene of sorts. Like, he could have just gone quietly. And instead, he's like, no, you guys are going to come out and do this in public so everyone knows what you're doing and why. And I think that that's really interesting because it's 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 pretty brash, you know. Indeed, I think you're right. Yeah, I want to come back to that because I think there's another layer to that that makes this even more interesting. But yeah, keep going. Other thoughts that you guys have about how Paul handles this political situation, this uh, legal situation here in the city of Philippi? Anything else interesting to you about this? I mean, I think you guys have kind of hit most of the high notes, but some of you others may have see some other things that are interesting here. I just see that. Uh, go ahead, Ruth, and then Nelson. Go ahead, Ruth. Uh, I think I was more of, I think Paul, well, think, knowing of Paul and how he is about suffering and suffering in itself, but I think it, for him it was about the, the reputation and what they were doing um, towards the, ma the masses. So it's not like he's trying to, like, say I matter, but it's more of, like, making sure that they, like, I guess Rome, Rome is acknowledging that these citizens matter. So it's not like I don't think he would be, wasn't able to handle certain injustices that he was facing, but it's about like making sure that, um, that they are, I, I mean, he's more of about like how it's being publicized yeah. in a way. So, so I think you're exactly right. And, and you may want to follow up or Brittany and Nelson, I'm not forgetting about you. I'm coming right back. I just want to follow up on this because actually what you said, Ruth, to me is the companion piece to Brittany's point. Paul is brash. I like that word. I mean, he's just like, listen, they're going to bring us out in the light of day in public. So everybody's going to see the bad thing they did. And yet what's weird is he didn't stop them before he got arrested, before he got beat, before he got thrown in prison without a trial. He let that happen. But then now, once the opportunity was presented for him to be released, so when it was about him, it was no problem. But here, and I, I'm maybe misreading what you're saying, Ruth, but so correct me if I'm, if I'm going down on a different yeah. path. Mm -hmm. But now he's released and he goes to the house of Lydia. He doesn't just leave town. In other words, like, hey, they messed with me. And these are my people, the jailer, Lydia, these Jesus followers. Implication being, don't mess with them because I'll come back into town and I'll have something to say and you guys are going to get in trouble for what you've done. He's publicizing this for the benefit, not for himself, but for the benefit of others and specifically for the benefit of his brethren whenever he has the opportunity to, like I said, Brittany and exactly. Go yes. ahead. Yeah, I totally agree. That's what, yeah, that was actually my main point for the benefit of other people. Yeah. 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 So he asserts his political rights in a really strong way. Um, but it's not, it's not really for even all Philippians, frankly. It's pretty concentrated on uh, the brethren and for making sure that things are going well with them. And, and that would extend out to others as well, obviously. Um, Nelson, and then anybody else jump on in here. Nelson, what you got, brother? Yeah, I just thinking about that Paul has, uh, you know, he, he considered himself that it's okay even being a Christian to address, uh, to voice yourself in, in in situations like when it matters um, and to voice your rights as a citizen and uh, just thinking about back to the question that you asked and I think that's something to learn like he did that because he has a right in a country or in a citizen that is a part of to address his rights and it's not wrong as a Christian. Mm -hmm. yep. Yep. Good. I don't know if I missed this, but how how did his actions benefit others? Well, at, at least by implication, it would be that the Philippians um, in the city, the, the Philippian authorities, 
were publicly embarrassed here. They had to bring him out. Everybody would have seen us in the light of day. It wasn't a secret kind of thing. He said, no, no, they're going to do it publicly. And then it's known, well, first off, the reason why Paul was arrested in the first place was because of his preaching. And then he goes to the house of Lydia, who, and we skipped over this detail, but earlier in the story, she's a seller of purple, which was kind of code for an important businesswoman in the city. So she, Paul then goes to her house. I think it's by implication. I don't think it's explicitly stated in the text, but I think the implication is Paul was doing this to highlight, hey, here's this group of people. Don't mess with them just because of their faith. Um, so I think that's how it would have been a benefit to others for him to do this in this way. Does that make sense? Yeah. That, that's, that's a little bit of an assertion. Ruth, you may want to follow up and, and clarify some more too. That's just my take on that. But Ruth, you may want to add on to that. Yeah, I was going to, yeah, adding on to that. Like, even if you think about what he's doing, what he, his, the encouragement, I feel like when we see in Philippians about like how to suffer well, and he expresses that, but he's also kind of like not like, I guess, covering all bases. Like to the people that like, hey, you, you don't have to like, yeah, we can suffer, but it's, it's still not okay for us to be enduring this because he's going to leave them eventually. So I think he's advocating for them um, so that when he does leave, that he's making sure that in a way he's being protective because they're going to suffer the same way he suffered in certain ways. I think that's right too. Yeah. Diana? You know what just came to mind? You know, I have these weird thoughts. Uh, you ever see like a, a movie with the bully, like they bullying the kids and like this one guy and the guy beat up the bully and he'd be like, oh, this is in charge. Look, and you see my friends, you do not touch my friends. So I don't know if that came to my mind yep. where Paul is like, okay, I got you all, but you see these, I'm leaving town, but you bet not touch them. That's right. So that, to, to me, that looked like the, the whole bully situation. That that's how I think it's a great illustration. I think that's a good way to say it. All right, cool. Other observations, curious things you notice here, things you want to ask about as far as how Paul um, behaves politically in this setting. Um, can I say something? Yeah, please. Yeah, I I think it has to do with he made that decision to speak out um, for the furtherance of the gospel because it would, um, he would have a chance to, um, you know, to keep on letting people know what's going on. And um, also for the uh, people, you know, for the uh, Lydia and them. Um, but I think it, it was a gospel decision, not, you know, not personal decision. Well said, Marilyn. And I think we could, we could support what you just said by the very fact, again, Paul did not assert these rights when it was him getting thrown into prison. When it was just Paul getting in trouble, he was cool with that. He let it happen. And there was no, it was no apparent thing on his mind. I mean, he could have spoken up before. Matter of fact, the very next story we're going to look at, Paul does speak up before he gets arrested. So it's not like Paul never came to his mind. But you're, I think you're exactly right, Marilyn. I think the reason why he speaks up after and speaks up in this way and asserts his rights is because he was concentrated on how is this going to impact um, the, the pursuit of preaching the gospel in the world. That goes back to our discussion last week. That was what they were concentrated on, every interaction. Remember last week, we looked at all these different interactions where the disciples were, were speaking to the political power players of their day, kings and governors. Every time they talked to them, though, all they ever wanted to talk about was the gospel. They had ample opportunity to talk about social policy and taxation policy and all sorts of things, but they didn't. They talk to these people about the gospel. So I think you're absolutely right. This was a gospel decision. And now Paul does assert his personal political rights, but it does seem like it's for a bigger cause than just something for him or even something that would be for the city of Philippi or something like that uh, on its own. He had bigger, bigger plans. Um, well, he had God's plans in mind. All right, cool. Let's look at another one. Acts 22. Acts 22. Here's the setting. In Acts chapters 20 and 21, Paul and some of his companions came to bring a, a gift to the, the Christians in Jerusalem. Christians in Jerusalem were suffering in poverty. They were suffering socially, politically, in every way, really. And uh, there were churches from the rest of the surrounding region, Macedonia, Achaia, what we would call Greece today, other places. They had collected money and sent it to the Jews. So it was a beautiful act of harmony, and uh, mutual love among 
the body of Christ worldwide. And so Paul rolls up into town. He brings the gift to the church in Jerusalem. But there were Jews there in Jerusalem who saw him in the temple, and they didn't like him being there. They told a lie about him. By the way, there's shades of what happened with Jesus here. There was a lie told about Jesus that got him arrested. There was a lie told about Paul that he had uh, brought Gentiles into the temple courts, into parts of the temple that they weren't allowed legally. Well, it was a lie. It wasn't true. But still, you don't need the truth to get the mob stirred up. And so there was a mob of, of Jews there in Jerusalem going crazy, yelling, screaming, angry, all this kind of stuff. And so um, there was a, uh, a Roman um, guard there. And so the guard grabs Paul and they arrest him. And, he, and Paul says to the man, hey, would it be okay if I address the crowd? This is at the end of chapter 21. And the guy says, you, you speak Greek? So yeah, yeah, I do. So um, Paul ends up addressing the crowd in the language of the Hebrew people. And he gives his testimony of how he came to Christ and all these beautiful things that happened. But then he gets the crowd stirred up again by the end of his speech. So where we're going to pick up is the end of that speech. And I want you to note how Paul handles this political situation that he's in as he's arrested. Acts 22, verse 22. Acts 22, verse 22. A lot of similarities with the last story, but just notice what, what you see here in the text. And let's talk about how Paul utilizes his political privileges as a Roman citizen, as a Jew in Jerusalem, etc. Acts 22, verse 22. The people listened to him up until this last statement. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a man. This, he is, should not be allowed to live. As they were crying and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging, interrogated in other words, so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. So the commander thinks this guy's a real troublemaker, we're going to just whip him until he starts admitting his guilt and his fault. But when they, when they stretched him out with thongs, like leather, um, you know, ties, basically. When they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, what are you about to do? This man is a Roman. The commander came and said to, to him, tell me, are you a Roman? Paul said, yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. In other words, don't play around. This is serious. Which it was, by the way, to be a Roman citizen. It was this big, big deal, big privilege. You know, it was your get out of jail free card everywhere. Literally, as we're about to see. Paul said, well, I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. All right, what do you find interesting about this little story as Paul um, interacts with the political circumstances of his day? What's, uh, what's striking to you? What's interesting to you about the way he handles it? Ruth. He utilizes his privileges. He does. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty, yeah, he absolutely does. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Brittany, what are you thinking? I think it's interesting that he, he lets it go all the way up until somebody whips him, you know? And, and that's interesting, too, because he's, it's like a, it's just a really fascinating political move. Like what he's doing is getting himself maximum exposure to the maximum number of people. If he had just told like the first guy, maybe it would have all ended there. But instead you've got this whole group of Roman soldiers who are, are who are probably now curious, like who is this guy? He's a Roman and what's he preaching? And then, like, it's just fascinating to me that this is like, it's a classic political tactic. Like get yourself maximum exposure. That's what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point, it's strange. This dude, he speaks in Hebrew. He says he's a Roman. 
he's calling us out, but he waited till a really awkward time. Like the guy's got the whip. He's ready to go to town. And then he speaks up. What's going on here? Yeah. Uh, Ruth, you had something in Diana. I don't know if it, it may not be, it may be a question or anything. I know like when it comes to the um, other, other apostles, um, they kind of look down as like, hey, these are uneducated Galileans and, you know, the perception of people. And I know that Paul, Paul even in, in, in prison, he's preached to the, um, to the guards and stuff like that. So he, is it, is he trying to kind of like, I mean, it speaks to it all the time. Is he trying to like be all things to all people too, in a sense, like saying like, hey, even though I'm speaking this new gospel a sense, but it's like establishing who he is in in the culture like in and saying like okay i guess i don't know kind of being a little bit relevant not for the sake of relevance but like in a way kind of tugging at that i'm not sure which part are you thinking about with him doing that like him talking to the guards or him speaking to the crowd or which part are you focusing i think like all of it i don't i mean i don't know it, maybe I don't know if it's, it's if it's like with the guards. It's like, hey, I'm a, like I'm by birth. Like it was almost like a, uh, I don't want to say a humble brag, but it's more of like a. It's a flex. It's a flex, yeah. Because he could have just said yes, but that dude's like, right. I paid a lot of money for this. You better take this seriously. Right. And Paul's like, yeah, homie, I was born a citizen, okay. right? I've been taking it seriously since the womb. Okay, so calm down. Like, yeah, he absolutely right. was. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I don't know. I'm just the question is like, is he? I don't know. I'm trying to see if it's. Is it something, is it more of like, like why he's doing it? So I guess it's a question that you, you probably asking, but I'm just curious. To That's a good question. Does somebody, somebody may want to jump on this question that Ruth's bringing out is why is he doing this exactly? What's, what's going on here? What's the goal of what he's doing? And by the way, we may get into that more as we keep going, but some of you may have some follow-up or some commentary on that. Diana, you had something that may have been unrelated and that's fine. If you just have something you want to jump on, but everybody remember Ruth's question. Maybe I want to follow up with that. Diana, go ahead. I wanted to agree with, Brittany, it is like fascinating because he let them, that's how confident Paul was. Like he let them get the whip and all this stuff and he just said it, this is cool. You know, I'm born by, I'm by, he let them go that far. But he was so confident that he knew who he was and he knew his political rights and he knew this and he let them take up the whip, let them question him and he just was so cool, I'm one by birth. So it is, Brittany, I agree, that is like fascinating because I probably would have quickly as soon as they tied me up i would have said i'm a citizen yeah which i want to i want to add this uh to the equation and you guys keep going because others of y'all may have some observations on this one it's interesting um you know we noted last time paul was really brash i don't know about you guys but in this one i don't and i think he was in the last one he was really assertive demanding in this one he's not he just asks a question is it lawful to do what you guys are doing like, I thought that was against the rules. Uh, and when the guy asked the questions, I mean, there is a, he is flexing a little bit, but at the same time, he's also being pretty uh, meek, I think the word would be. He's strong, but he's not overly assertive with his, his political rights, which is interesting, I think, and noteworthy. But also, I like your point there, Diana, of the confidence element here, where um, it's almost like Paul isn't too concerned if he got whipped a little bit. He was going to be okay with that. He didn't want to be. And he actually, and uh, we'll get more into this in just a minute, he could see how what he was doing would end up leveraging for more opportunities for the gospel, back to Marilyn's point. But that confidence that he had in Christ made him not overly anxious or angry about what was going on socially and politically related to him. He was able to deal with it in a really calm way uh, that's pretty exceptional and, and impressive. Uh, I, I, I always feel like um, in each instance, he does something different. You know, one, one place they stay in jail and they say, you know, we're all still here. Another place he walks out. Um, I'm thinking I may be ahead of myself, but I'm thinking when he appeals to Caesar, you may be planning to talk about that. But to me, it's like in this case, too. God is guiding him what to do in this instance. In this instance, this is going to be what you do. In this instance, you're going to do something else. It's not, and it's not at all personal. 
He's not fighting for his rights. He's fighting for, he's just going to do whatever God leads him to do. And as you said, he's not going to enjoy being beaten or this or that, but he didn't enjoy being in jail all those years, you know, but it got him to go to Caesar and all those other people. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I love uh, two things that you said there, Mary. One is, it's right. You're right. Paul is not fighting for his rights. He's very much asserting his rights as a Roman citizen. But what he's fighting for is something bigger. What he sees his political rights are a tool that he can use for the larger fight of the gospel that he's engaging in. That's one thing I think is really, that's a good way of kind of categorizing that. Doesn't mean we don't care about those things in whatever political sphere we're in, but it means we see them as not as, that, that's not the end goal in other words. Our political rights is not really something we're trying to grab onto. It's something that if we have them, we utilize them, or Paul did at least. Uh, but we utilize them for the bigger fight that we're fighting, which is the proclamation of the gospel. But the other thing that I think is really significant and really valuable for us to remember as we keep on going tonight and in a couple of weeks uh, with our, our last discussion on this as a group. Um, boy, Paul acts in very different ways in different circumstances. There's not really a specific formula for how you're supposed to conduct yourself in world politics. Which means, that's why we're not coming out with, here's the five rules for Christians on politics, or here's the party every Christian should support, or here's this, the 11 issues that every Christian needs to care about. Because frankly, that stuff is not uh, static. There's a fluidity to it. And you see that even in Paul's conduct, that based on the situation, he behaves a little bit differently. There's some bedrock principles, but in terms of how to apply those principles, there's some, uh, some variation as we go. So, all right, good. Other options, Diana, go ahead. You know what, Ben, I just thought about how Paul stood there and they was getting ready to whip him. That's how Jesus stood there. Yes. And, and he didn't say a word. He, they questioned him and it was just for the bigger picture. Like you said, it was a bigger fight. That's so that's what that reminds me of. Thanks for pointing that out. And we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. It's easy for us to think about the death of Christ just as a spiritual thing. But it's important to note Jesus was killed for political reasons. That is why he was killed. It was a political maneuver by the people who were in power. They saw him as a threat to their uh, political structure and power, and they killed him for that. And Jesus allowed that to happen because he was pursuing something bigger than what was going on in his world, um, even for those who were his followers, even for people who were, were with him. All right, good. Any other observations on this story, just things you find interesting about Paul? and how he handles his business in this political setting, in this political situation. So I want to come back, and, and I think this may touch on some of what Ruth was bringing up as far as why Paul was doing this. Why did he act this way? Here's what happens next. Basically, the commander is just really confused. He takes Paul before the Jewish council, and there's a big fight, basically, that erupts um, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two warring factions among the Jews for power, political power. And uh, they're planning on transporting Paul to uh, a Roman governor to stand trial there because the Jews couldn't work things out. Um, there was a plot against Paul's life that Paul had to escape in the middle of the night. The commander saved him from. And Paul ends up before various Roman rulers. And we come to Acts chapter 25, and Paul is now on his second trial in, uh, in, uh, in, in the Roman courts. And in Acts chapter 25, and we're going to start reading around verse 9, Acts 25 starting around verse 9. By the way, you guys may remember last week we talked about Paul spoke with Felix, and when he spoke with Felix, he talked about the gospel. Specifically, he would talk to him about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Um, but here, now Paul stands before Festus, another ruler who's taken over uh, after Felix. And uh, Festus is, he's a political player. He wants to help hook the Jews up. They want this guy Paul killed. If he can work it out, he'd love to do him a favor. So listen to what he says, uh, what happens starting in verse 9 and then going through verse 12. Acts 25, starting in verse 9. But Festus, who was wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and he said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to stand trial before me on these charges? That is the charges the Jews were bringing against Paul. But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I've done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. 
If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of these things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. All right. What's, uh, what's interesting to you here about how Paul talks about or Paul interacts with Festus, who is a, a big shot ruler. Uh, he's standing there before him. Of course, in, in that cultural setting, uh, rulers and judges were almost the same office. You know, they kind of served similar offices. They would set policy and execute policy. Uh, what do you notice about how Paul handles this? Mark, go ahead. I like how Paul challenges Festus, telling him if he did anything wrong, call him on it. And he's taking responsibility at the same time, saying, if I really did do something wrong, punish me, then I'm guilty. I like the way he point. He does kind of challenge Festus. You got anything, boss? You got anything you can call me out on? But also, Paul, there's a humility there. Hey, if I've done anything wrong, I'm ready to be punished. It's fine. I'm totally submissive to you, Festus. Um, but you really don't have the right to do anything that they're asking you to do. And I know that, and you know that. Paul goes back to the legal code. What else do you guys find interesting about this interaction here? Like how in verse 12, if I can just add, Festus had to confer with his counsel. He didn't make the decision on his own. He went to the counsel. Yeah. And that's a good point, just context, right? Paul's not just talking to one guy. This was, uh, this was like there was a whole group of people there uh, interacting with this situation that he was dealing with. Yeah. Other, Diana. And it seemed like when Mark said in verse 12, it's like Festus is being like sarcastic. Like, okay, you want to go to the emperor? You know, like, to the emperor, you go. Okay, we're going to see what's going to happen. Yeah. Kind of like uh, your funeral, buddy. Yeah. Uh, what do you guys think about that? Let's talk about that specifically. Because a lot of this stuff is sort of rehashed. Same things, right? Paul's asserting his rights. Paul's being really bold. Paul is being really meek. Like, there's all these things we're kind of seeing repetition in these uh, various interactions. But this one is kind of different. Paul specifically asks to go to Caesar, the big man in Rome ruler of all the world. I was about to say free world, but it's not free. It's an enslaved world to Caesar's rule. What do you think about that with Paul asserting his right to go stand before Caesar? What do you think about that decision? What's he doing there? What's, what's happening with Paul requesting to go stand before Caesar? Which, by the way, I'll just go ahead and tell you, in the next chapter, Agrippa will come before, um, Paul will stand before Agrippa, another leader that Festus wants to check things out. He's like, hey man, can you you need another set of eyes on this. I don't really know what to tell the emperor. I got to send this dude, Paul, because he requested to go. I don't know what to say. Paul gives his testimony on trial. By the way, I mean his uh, legal testimony. I don't mean his spiritual testimony like we use that word, although it kind of doubled as that. But his legal testimony. And after that, Agrippa says, if this guy hadn't already appealed to Caesar, you ought to just let him go. In other words, once Paul appealed, you got to go to Caesar. That's, you kind of set that in stone. But Agrippa says, this guy didn't do anything wrong. So Paul must have known that. Paul must have known. Well, certainly, obviously, he knew all the other rules. He knew that he hadn't done anything wrong, that he could have gotten off the hook. But instead, he specifically requests to go to the highest court in the land, to Caesar, to the belly of the beast, to Rome itself. What do you make of that? What's going on? Ruth. Um, I may be off, but I, I just see that, like, just making that the gospel is for everyone, even people in high places. I may be wrong, but I don't, I don't see what other purposes to show this. I mean, there could be other purposes in terms of, like, of course, advocating for everybody else, but I just still think it's something else in terms of, like, what Miss Marilyn said earlier about he cares about the advancement of the gospel. And so making it known to people in high places, I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, and by the way, I should have said before I asked the question, we're, we're supposing here, guys, we're doing our best guess on this stuff, why he would do this. Um, so uh, to Ruth's point, I don't know either for sure. But I think what Ruth just said is, is a great uh, summary of what, what we know about Paul. And I'm going to point you guys to something in just a minute that I think will support what she said even more, some other evidence from one of Paul's writings. 
Um, but yeah, I think that's a big one. Uh, other theories on why Paul's doing this, or just what, what you get out of that, what you, what you think is interesting about Paul making this choice to appeal to go to the highest court, to Caesar, Diana. That, that Paul was willing to be put to death. He knew the, the consequences for the gospel. And think about it. Remember when Jesus came to him, it was like, they're going to do this to you. So he already knew when he fell off that horse. He knew. But he was willing to go to Caesar. That was almost like instant death if he would have said, oh, no, we're not going to do this. So he was willing to suffer for the gospel. I think so. I mean, for all this, these assertions of his rights, and including going to Caesar, I mean, he is asserting his rights. He's utilizing his political means and privileges that he has at his disposal. And yet he's in some ways actually making his life even more dangerous, not less dangerous by doing that in this case. With these guys, Felix, Festus, Agrippa, I mean, they're, they're low-level political figures in the region of Judea. Um, but Caesar is the big dog. And by the way, you roll up to Caesar and you start preaching about another king named Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. How, well, y'all remember how Herod felt about it whenever Jesus was born, whenever people came saying, we came to see the king of the Jews. I mean, that's, that's treason talk. Paul wanted to go bear witness of a treasonous message of Jesus the king to Caesar. He's using his political privileges but man, the reasons that we need to do it. Go ahead, Donna. Even when, okay, we're saying he's using all his political privileges, but who's to say that these are your privileges they were going to be adhered to? You know, they could have been like, so what? That's so, right. But he still was like, nope, I'm a Jew. So we can't even look at it as he used his political privilege to go see Caesar, because Caesar could have said, yo, I don't even want to hear you. That's right. I'm done. That's right. You have no privilege with me. That's right. And if that had happened, how do you think Paul would have reacted? You think he would have cried? You think he would have pitched a fit? I don't think so. I think he would have shrugged his shoulders and said, well, whatever. I'm going to preach the gospel to whomever I can. By the way, I just want to add on one thing. Um, in Acts chapter 21, when Paul was traveling toward Jerusalem, before this arrest, before all this string of events we've looked at these past couple of texts, there was a prophet who uh, took a belt and he bound his hands and feet and he said, this is what's going to happen to Paul when he goes to Jerusalem. In other words, he prophesied this was going to happen. And so everybody says, oh, Paul, don't go. Don't do it. Please don't do it. Here's the interesting thing. The Lord never specifically appears to Paul and says, no, no, go ahead and do it. Never happens. Uh, nor does the Lord say, don't do it. There was no guidance given either direction. Paul made a choice what he thought was in the best interest of the kingdom, of God's people, of the gospel. When you take that, so he knew this stuff was going to happen, in other words, but he decided to go into it anyways. And I believe, this goes back to Ruth's point, that part of the reason would have been because of uh, what we read in, in Romans chapter 15. In Romans 15, which predates all the stuff we've looked at, Paul tells the Romans at the end of that chapter, you can check it out later on your own, but at the end of Romans 15, he says to them, hey, I want to come visit you guys, and then from you guys, I want to go preach in Spain. Well, here's my opinion, uh, and it is opinion, so you guys can throw this in the trash if you want. But my opinion is that Paul saw an opening here. He said, you know what? I can get a free ticket to Rome, and not just any place in Rome. I can go meet Caesar and get to know some of his household, some of the most influential people in the world, and I can preach the gospel to them. I want to go to Rome anyways to be with the brethren. So why don't I just take a prison ship instead of taking a, you know, normal ship like I'd have to take. It'll be tough. Some bad stuff could happen, but I'll be helping folks along the way. I'll get to Rome, which is where I want to be anyways. And then I'll go on to Spain after that, or I'll get killed and I'll go to heaven and that'll be all right too. You know, either way, I'm good. Paul used his, uh, his political rights and privileges to leverage opportunities to serve his brethren and to preach the gospel to the lost. Uh, other thoughts and comments on what we see Paul doing here with, uh, with the things he does politically. So I want to come back to our, our question, which was, uh, can Christians, or maybe the better question would be, did Christians utilize worldly political means and opportunities? It's an unequivocal yes. We've seen that Paul challenged improper arrest proceedings in Philippi, called out the officials, made them look bad. Paul utilized his rights to speak 
and to not be punished without trial as a Roman citizen in Jerusalem. That's the text from Acts 22. Paul appealed to be tried before Caesar and end up in the city of Rome. Uh, and I'm just going to add on one more. This comes from Paul's writings. But in his writings, Paul positively highlighted saints who were agents of the state. Uh, there's not a lot of this, but there's enough to where we can say it's there. In Romans chapter 16, for instance, there's a brother named Erastus who is highlighted as being the city treasurer from the city Paul was writing, which we understand to be the city of Corinth, a major city in the Roman Empire uh, and in the, in the Mediterranean. So Paul says there's a brother named Erastus who works for the city of Corinth. And by the way, if you know anything about the city of Corinth, that was a trash place. I mean, it was corrupt. They did some bad stuff there. And yet Erastus apparently was able to continue serving Christ and work as the city treasurer. Uh, also, um, in, at the end of Philippians, Philippians chapter four, Paul says there, he says, hey, those who are of Caesar's household greet you. Paul had met and knew, and we would presume had converted to Christ some people who lived and or worked in Caesar's household whenever he went on to be arrested there. So here's the point. Can Christians utilize worldly political means and opportunities? It's unequivocal, yes. I want us to remember that the, the focus of all the political discourse and focus was on proclaiming the good news. That was what it was all about. But they used their political rights on a personal level uh, for the good, good of others and for the sake of the kingdom. They absolutely did that. Um, I want to just pause on this point because maybe some of you want to highlight some things of how this relates to our day and time. Just thoughts you have about this. Maybe there's questions that arise with this. Maybe this excites you. Maybe this makes it harder for you to think about politics in our day and age. What do you guys want to say about this uh, observation that we've collected from, from these few stories in the book of Acts that, that indeed Christ's followers did utilize individual political privileges to their advantage? and for the sake of the kingdom. Any thoughts or comments on that before we, before we move on? We got kind of one more major movement I want us to focus on before we wrap up tonight. But uh, anything you guys want to say about that? Uh, ben, I think it's like know your rights, you know what I'm saying, as a citizen, but just have wisdom. Yeah. You, like you said, use godly wisdom. Where we, we all know, most of us know our own rights, but just use don't get so frustrated with it because we know our rights and we know what's going to happen, but just use wisdom as proper wisdom. And I might add, you said godly wisdom. And I'll tell you, if you want to know how to be wise, go read the end of the James chapter three. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, willing to yield, reasonable. Um, yeah, that's right. Other thoughts, as you think about how Paul utilized his political privileges in his day, how that relates, or maybe how it doesn't relate, maybe you just want to throw something out there. We're not, we're not looking for uh, dead set correct answers or anything, but maybe some of you want to throw out some just ideas and things that are rolling around in your head. It's like, okay, so does that mean this in our day and age? Or but well, how does that impact this issue in our day and age? Any thoughts on that you guys want to throw out there right now? All right, keep thinking about it because in two weeks, that's what we're going to talk about, this sort of stuff. Here's where I want us to go to wrap things up. Back up to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. We've seen that individuals utilize their political rights, but I want to look at one story that I think is indicative of actually a lot of stories in the book of Acts that's important for us to consider as we think about political action. What we've seen is individuals utilize their political privileges. Paul, whenever he was being mistreated, he asserted, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, or hey, you're not allowed to do this, or hey, you need to do that, whatever. He did that. Um, we also see people like Erastus and people working, living in Caesar's household that were saints. And they weren't apparently being rebuked for that. They were serving the Lord while also serving in political office. Much like, by the way, Daniel and his friends in the book of Daniel. So this isn't a new thing for us. We've seen this already uh, among God's people. But what about on uh, collective action? What about uh, gathering together, maybe as God's people, to fight against evils in society? Uh, what about partnering with people that are of the world to fight against evils that we happen to have shared values? There's kind of a Venn diagram where, you know, the kingdom ends up overlapping with uh, worldly values too sometimes, right? Uh, what are we supposed to do about that? Are we supposed to participate in that way? So here's what happened in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, Paul's in the city of Ephesus. Things are going great. People are being converted. There's a section in Acts 19 that describes how 
people who used to be practitioners of the magic arts, sorcery, they took their books of magic and they burned them just out in the open. And, and the, the, there were all kinds of people that would have witnessed this huge bonfire of just destruction of all kinds of evil stuff. They were influential in the city, so influential that they started affecting the economy. So uh, there was a pretty vibrant silversmith industry because Ephesus was the home of the goddess Diana or Artemis, depending on your translation. Uh, by the way, there was basically a meteor rock that hit the earth and people thought, aha, one of the gods have come among us and they had set up a temple shrine to Artemis. There was worship to her. And so you guys know when you go to Disney World, you come out with a little figurine of Mickey Mouse. When you go to wherever place, you come out with something. Whenever you go to Ephesus, you would go and you would purchase a little idol, a little figurine of Artemis. Well, the problem was the Christians were so influential, people were not worshiping Artemis. And when people were coming to town, they were becoming Christians. They weren't becoming Art Artemisians uh, anymore. And so uh, the, the, uh, the union, the, the silversmith guild got together, led by a man named Demetrius. And they said, this dude, Paul's got to go. He's messing up. He's messing up the worship of our goddess, but he didn't really care about the goddess. He's messing up our, our income, our revenue. And so they, they get the whole town riled up and, and everybody's in the, in the arena chanting, great is Diana of the Ephesians, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Everybody's going crazy. It actually says in the text that, uh, that whenever people were shouting, uh, verse 28, they were filled with rage. Verse 29, the city was filled with confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater. They dragged some of the brethren, Paul's companions, into the theater, verse 32. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they come together. Have you guys ever seen uh, groups of people that act, act like that? This is not uncommon. That whenever there's something happening in society, everybody just gets riled up. This is the, the exact essence of, uh, essence of the mob mentality. And it happens on all sorts of things, sporting events, political things, whatever. This isn't a, a, a unique deal. Anyway, so everybody's going crazy and just, just upset. Well, the city clerk, who's kind of in charge of things, he shows up. And I want you to listen to what he says, and then let's discuss what does this tell you about the way the Christians as a unit, not individually, but as a collective, what were they known as in terms of their political involvement, their political engagement, their political presence in society? How were they regarded? How were they known based on the testimony this man gives? Verse 35. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? Oh, he says, we all know y'all are chanting great as Artemis. We know that. We're Ephesians. We know. Verse 36. So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here, the Christians, who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there's no real cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. With that, he dismissed the crowd. All right, what, uh, what do you guys see here um, in what's being said um, by the clerk? What does he say about the Christians and what does it tell you about their political participation as a unit of people, as a group? What, what are you saying here? What's interesting to you? That their rioting has brought Christians um, there. Good. So the Ephesians rioting, the non-Christians are rioting and, um, and they're upset, right? Um, yeah. And they're getting in trouble for that. Keep going. What else do you see? What else does this guy have to say about the Christians? Um, so just my point before he used, that was like godly wisdom. He knew exactly what to say. He, he knew not to rile them up. You know what I'm saying? 
mm-hmm. he had he used wisdom. Yeah, yeah. You mean the clerk? Yeah, the clerk used like God. That was God. He knew he couldn't say this to the Ephesians. You know, it's it's just godly wisdom. He does exhibit it. It's unclear. I, I don't think he was a Christian because he praises the the goddess. But he does actually give us a pretty good example of settling things down like the Lord would want. Yeah. What do you see that he says about the Christians? What's the commentary he gives about Christians? Um, So I think he, you know, by saying that um, they will be accused for having a uh, disorderly gathering, he's admitting that the Christians are not in the wrong. Um, I think that also it speaks to like, the precedents that Christians with the help of um, Paul has set. Um, so like the, the man is speaking and he's able to calm down this entire mob. So obviously he pull, has great weight with everyone. Um, yep. So he's aware of what's going on throughout the Roman empire um, and Christians utilizing their Roman citizenship um, to advocate um, for their, for themselves. Um, and I think that, um, him being aware of that. So I think they've made a, a great impact on um, that, that world at the time. Um, and then just kind of setting themselves apart um, and then just setting the world at odds saying, oh, well, actually, yeah, I see that I'm in the wrong. I need to temper, you know, temper myself down um, if I don't want to be viewed as the um, oppressor of sorts. Yeah. I love especially that first piece of what you're saying, Jess. I think you circled back around to it at the end. He's saying, hey, guys, y'all get mad at these folks, but we're going to get in trouble because we're acting out. They didn't start this riot. They didn't start this mob. They're not out here going crazy. We're doing that. And the Christians apparently were just not, they, were not, they didn't incite that. And they weren't really, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like there was like a counter assault against the, the non-Christians who were attacking them. There's not a, a reverse chant. It wasn't like, great is Diana of the Ephesians greatest Jesus of heaven. Like that, that was, that was not happening. It was just one-sided, right? The Christians were not exhibiting that same spirit uh, that the non-Christians were, which is noteworthy. And it seems like something the clerk is trying to highlight. Ruth, go ahead. Um, no, I was just going to highlight the fact that not only it's like their conduct, they were, he said they weren't sacrilegious or blasphemous of our goddess. It's not like they even, like the Christians weren't out there, not just being like, um, like writing and whatever, they weren't disrespecting our our places of worship. So that that was kind of significant. Um, like, are we Christians for us? How do we show up in the world? Do we disrespect other people's faith in a way, even though we are pointing to the truth of who we serve and feel like there's only one God? You don't have to do the negative in order to establish that. Yes, that one line has been stuck in my head for years. I don't know when it was that that first jumped off the page to me, but it's meant a lot for me in political discourse and and, and even just considering participation. Here's a question for you guys. Do y'all think the Christians were, had any doubts about whether or not they should be worshiping Artemis or whether or not it was a good thing to worship Artemis? Like when they were meeting their neighbors, when they were talking to folks, do you think that they were like, oh, well, I mean, maybe not, but it's probably okay. And like, do you think there's any, any doubt, any question of that? I don't think so either. I mean, you can look at the life of Paul, the preaching of Paul and how that would have influenced the people in Ephesus. If you met a Christian, you would have known exactly what they thought. We know that partly because they were burning their books of sorcery. I mean, they, they made pretty definite stances on that the, the, the religion, which by the way, you guys know in the Roman empire in this era and like in most eras in most parts of the world, Religion and politics were inextricably woven together. And so to say Artemis is wrong was to take a political stance, to take a social stance. If you talk to a Christian, you would know exactly where they stood on that. It would be unequivocal. It would be absolute. It would be firm. And yet the clerk says, they're not messing with us, guys. They're not messing with our religion. They're not messing with our practices. Now, were they? In a sense, yes because they were converting people to Christ. But here's what I don't think was happening. The Christians weren't taking um, poster boards of the heinous things that were going on inside of uh, Artemis's temple, you know, 
really graphic pictures. And So it wouldn't be a proper Bible study series recorded and put online in 2020 without a technological glitch. Uh, obviously, this is not the complete sentence that I was about to finish there in the in the recording. But what happened during class was our Zoom connection got lost, the recording got cut off, and we weren't able to resume recording whenever we got back online and finished out the study. So I'm going to try to finish off my thought and the lesson I think we can glean from uh, the things we were looking at here in Acts 19 and do my best also to try to articulate some of what uh, what was the response to my point. All right, so here's where I was going with this thought from Acts 19 and the absence of any indication that the Christians were making public demonstrations related to Artemis worship, related to the really bad stuff that would have been going on associated with the worship of Diana of the Ephesians or Artemis of the Ephesians. I think what this story teaches us in Acts 19 is that the early church were, were incredibly principled. The, the followers of Jesus in the early church were really committed to what was right and what was wrong, and they were unafraid to take stances against evil societal practices. But they did not do that uh, on a group level in the public sphere, meaning they didn't go out and uh, protest in front of a Diana Temple. Uh, they didn't make poster boards and march around the city. Uh, they didn't do that kind of stuff. I believe this is instructive. I think Christians have to take a hardline stance on a number of issues um, of injustice against the unborn or immigrants or um, people of people of color in the United States of America. We have to be people who are extremely concerned about fair and right and uh, legal proceedings being given to all people. We need to be concerned about business practices that facilitate greed as opposed to fairness and hard work. You know, you just go all the way down the line. There's all kinds of issues that Christians have a view on because of what we know from the scriptures. And if anybody asks us about that personally, I don't think we should be unaf- I don't think we should be afraid to convey those in a respectful but honest and direct kind of way if we have uh, understanding from scripture on these things. But I don't see anything that indicates that Christians should be participating in uh, social public demonstrations socially, nor that churches themselves should organize to make public demonstrations. Our public demonstration is our righteous character, our kindness, our empathy, our own holiness, and our abstinence from all forms of sin, uh, our willingness to be there for those who are poor and outcast, and so on and so forth. So that, that's my take. I think I think not only this example in Acts chapter 19, but various passages in the New Testament that encourage Christians to go about minding their own business and living a quiet and peaceable life. 1 Timothy 2 is a passage we've come to a few times in these discussions. 1 Timothy 2 says that we should pray for all people, especially those in authority, but listen to what the prayer is in verse 2, that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. It's hard for me to understand how participating in large-scale societal protests fit in with that instruction to live quiet and peaceable lives. And of course, Jesus was the same way. Jesus had extremely uh, clear stances when it came to a variety of religious, moral, ethical, and yes, even socio-political matters. But he was known as someone who didn't raise his voice in the streets. That's what the scripture said about him. You can go read about that in Matthew chapter 12. That's the way he was described. First um, Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 11, speaking to the Thessalonians says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Anyway, uh, to me, the weight of evidence in the New Testament is is something that would discourage Christians from participating in large-scale socio-political protests, whether that be things that uh, the world organizes and we're just jumping on board, or things that um, you know even a church may organize. And I think there's also all other biblical reasons why churches, for sure, shouldn't be uh, organizing those sort of social things, but be oriented more toward the proclamation of the gospel, the service of the brethren, so that we can light up the world with the good news of Jesus. So that's my take. Like I said, I want to try to be fair. Obviously, since this is my what I'm persuaded of, 
um, it's going to be, I may not be completely fair with what I'm about to say as far as some of the response to those things. And it was a really good discussion. I'm so bummed out because honestly, of any clip of the past few weeks of discussions, this would have been probably some of the most interesting stuff because it was people bring out different perspectives. Because whether you're concerned about uh, the treatment of black people in America or the treatment of the unborn in America or the treatment of immigrants, there's lots of Christians who, for various reasons, think, hey, actually, we need to be out there making our voice heard in the public sphere in a big way, in an organized way. So uh, a couple people said, hey, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not condemned in Scripture. And that it's a way for those who are in the United States in a modern uh, so-called you know, liberal democracy, and I don't mean liberal in the way it gets used here, but in the technical sense, a democracy that allows people to make their voice heard, this is a way we can do it. And if it's done in a peaceful manner, some people highlighted that, hey, if it's, if it's done in a peaceful manner, then that would be a good thing because it's speaking up for those who don't have a voice. It's standing up for those who are oppressed and mistreated. Like I said, I've shared my thoughts on this, so I'm not going to give a rebuttal to any of that. I do want to say out loud that I can see the position. I can see the reason why people are persuaded for that. And frankly, I'm quite sympathetic to it. I'm constrained by some of the things I see in Scripture and the lack of an example of Christians doing that on an organized, public, socio-political way. But I do want to acknowledge that a few folks had things to share along this line that just got cut off in the recording, and I hate that. I wish we would have had that so that their voice would have been fully heard on this. I want to say that out loud. Here's the thing. If you're listening to this and you are a Christian, then you need to weigh out what is the best thing? What is the best course of action? What's the most biblically sound course of action? You may totally disagree. You may bring up a lot of scriptures that you think I'm missing out on and I'm not paying attention to. And God bless you for that. I don't. I, don't, I wouldn't get in a real big argument. I, I believe what I believe about this, but I wouldn't get a big argument with somebody or feel like I would draw some sort of relationship from somebody because they disagree on this, this challenging issue. But whatever decision you make, here's what I would exhort you to do if you're a Christian. You make sure that you have extremely sound, grounded, biblical reasoning for how you approach these issues in society at large because that's really what we're trying to do here. We're not just trying to do stuff that we think would be good or that people of a particular social or political persuasion tell us that we should do or that would be good. What we're trying to do is look at the scriptures and say, what does God say would be good? What does God say is the wisest course of action, the best course of action, the course of action that would elevate his cause in the world? Because that's what it is. Whether or not you go to a protest, any issue that someone might protest about, it's really not going to bring salvation. It's going to be a temporary good and maybe a true good but a temporary good at best. So when we're making decisions about this, let's try to be biblical and be open-minded to hear each other out and to test our thoughts in the Scripture. Let me wrap things up with a few principles that we brought home in this discussion at the end. Number one, one thing we learned from the early church, which we talked about in our last couple of discussions, is that followers of Jesus seek to spread the message of Christ's kingdom above every other good political pursuit. There are lots of good political pursuits out there. There are lots of good things Lots of good ways to love our neighbors. But if any of those supersede or take priority or draw our attention away from the, the primary thing we're trying to do, which is point people to the kingdom of Christ, then we need to drop that because no political action is as good or as righteous or as meaningful as pointing people to the good news of Christ's kingdom. All right, number two, followers of Jesus can utilize their personal political privileges whenever possible. And, of course, when not in conflict with the will of God and the commands of the Lord, right? We've seen this in, in the book of Acts, right? Paul asserted his rights when he was arrested uh, on a, multiple occasions. And that's just one example, and that's good enough. It's, it's okay for us to utilize the privileges that we have in whatever nation we live in in the world if we think that it's something that would do good for our neighbors and it would honor God. Now be careful. Make sure Romans 13, you do it submissively. First Peter 2, you do it respectfully and with honor to all people. Um, make sure that you're prayerful in a good way. First Timothy 2, we could go on and on. Utilize your political means as long as it doesn't conflict with the will and the commands of God. All right, number three, followers of Jesus never engage in political activities or discourse that incite or encourage worldly disturbance. A number of 
indications show that, where Paul wasn't trying to stir things up, make things bad. The situation in Ephesus, whatever you want to say about conclusions about whether or not Christians should participate in political protests, one thing we know is Christians were not the people who were stirring up violence and disturbances and, uh, and issues in that way. They were people who were trying to promote God's will. They were trying to promote peace and goodness and righteousness. And that's got to be our goal as well. Number four, followers of Jesus do not allow any social or political stance to impact their fellowship with one another. I realize this may not be explicitly stated in the book of Acts, but it's important that we notice all throughout the New Testament, there's an emphasis on not letting anything tear us apart. It's so easy for brothers and sisters in Christ who otherwise are in complete alignment on matters of doctrine. That may be something you'd have to divide over, but we don't want to. Um, but, but they're aligned on doctrine. They're aligned on their goals. But because of some sort of political persuasion or some particular political issue, they begin attacking and biting and devouring and ripping each other apart. That's not what it is. You don't see in the early church that there was one social or political stance that if you don't agree on this, you're out of here. No, followers of Jesus do not allow any social or political stance to impact our fellowship with one another because we're being what Jesus told us to be in all these things. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, Jesus said. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied by Jesus, not by the political forces of this world. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. God bless us to be like his people in the early church, that we would strive to not only uphold the gospel message, but live in a wise and godly way in the world where we conduct our business each day. God bless you. If anything that was said in this episode or any of the episodes raise some questions, please reach out to us. Um, on our website, thewaybk.com, on our Facebook page, The Way BK, or anywhere else uh, that you can reach out to any of us individually. We'd be happy to talk some more. You might need to correct us on some things. You might have some questions for clarification. Uh, you may just want to talk. Whatever it is, we're here for you and hope we can help. Thanks for joining us on this journey. The aim of The Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.